Hello, this is Angela Schaefers, the host of Your Story Matters radio show. If you'd like to comment or have further questions about today's show, you can reach us at www.yourstorymatters.net. Today we have Linda Rogers on the air, who is the Executive Director of Valley Restart, a nonprofit organization that teaches, trains, and helps others to restart their lives. Linda has gone through her own story of discouragement and empower and disempowerment to find hope in her life situation, and she will be sharing about her story and talking about Valley Restart. Thanks for joining us, Linda. Thank you for having me, Ed. So what I'd like to talk about is um, for 34 years, I was successfully employed in the substance abuse and, and mental health field in San Bernardino County. And I had been a, a program manager and executive director in other nonprofit organizations. And I really felt as though um, that was going to be where I was going to retire. Mm-hmm. And suddenly, um, I was let go from a job and um, found myself unemployed. Mm. I thought there would be no problem finding an, finding another job because of how many years in the industry. And, and I knew many people who ran programs. I went to them and, and asked if uh, they were interested in, in hiring me, even on an entry-level position, and, and they all said no. That, um, and their concern was because you'll find something better, and and then you'll end up leaving. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, uh, so I looked. I had, I made a deal, and my deal with God was I'll I'll suit up and show up for whatever you put in front of me. Mm-hmm. And in order to make sure that I didn't waste time, I made a contract with myself that I would every day look for a job for six hours a day six days a week mm-hmm. so that I didn't end up being a, a couch potato or hooked on soap operas. Mm-hmm. In all of that, I, I didn't have one interview till it had been uh, it was a little more than seven months. And, and I, was, uh, I was granted an interview with a, a government agency. I felt as though uh, the, the interview went really well. I got a second interview. And I was just sitting there waiting for the phone to ring and decided, well, I'll go ahead and call them. And the woman who picked up the phone said, well, this is my first day. Give me your name and I'll see if I can find some information. So mm-hmm. she came back on the phone and said, I wasn't hired. She didn't know whether she should tell me or that. And, and I just incredulously looked at the phone and, and I put it down and, and it rang. Mm-hmm. And it from this homeless shelter in Hemet, where I had put an application in uh, a, a couple months before. And they asked me if I was still looking for a job and if I was interested in coming in for an interview. Mm-hmm. I remember driving in the driveway, and in the parking lot was an ambulance, a police car, and a fire truck, all mm-hmm. with their, their lights ablazing. And as I parked my car, I wondered, what have I gotten myself into? Mm-hmm. I can imagine. As we walked to the interview room, I passed somebody, uh, and he said to the gentleman who was walking with me, the electricity's out again. And the gentleman said, so? Mm-hmm. thought, whoa. So I, I went, went through the, the interview, and uh, 
at, at the end of it, the, one of the board members said, so I don't know how you feel about short-term employment. And I said, well, what does that mean? He says, well, it's 30 days. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, you know, what can you do in 30 days? And they just laughed and they said, it isn't what we can do, you, what you can do in 30 days. We have funding for about 30 more days worth of operation. Wow. And so do I take something for 30 days? And I checked it out. There's no money for sitting on the couch. There was no money even for sitting at my computer. Mm-hmm. I had one month's worth of funding in the bank that would pay for my mortgage and my truck payment. And so I needed to put something in. So mm-hmm. I clearly was in a point of I'll do anything. Mm-hmm. And then there was the deal with okay, I'll suit up and show up for whatever God puts in front of me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. So I came to work at at, um, at at this place in Hammett. I didn't know anything about homelessness, but I knew a lot about substance abuse and about mental health, and, and I felt as though that was a, a, a good background for what I might be doing. And in um, that first month was, it, it, it was learning the job and taking care of piles of, of paper in one day. It was probably day number 31, 32. I was looking and we had $1,500 in the bank and there were $22,000 worth of bills sitting mm. on my desk. And I wondered if that was the day, if that was the day that the board talked about, and and a check came from the county, uh, a reimbursement for services that had already been performed for twenty one thousand. Wow, twenty one thousand fifteen hundred. Wow, guess today's not the day we're closing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it 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 got my attention, mm-hmm. and probably the first instance of beginning to notice what happens with need when God's in charge. Another simple one had to do with uh, we didn't have any bread for the for breakfast, and um, we're not very far from Edmond, so I was going to send somebody over to see if we could get some day-old bread. Those words were just out of my mouth, and a guy drove up and said, I have three boxes of bread. Do you guys need any? Awesome. I love what's happening and what you're sharing. And before you talk more about Valley Restart and what the foundational mission and goal is of the organization, let's go back a little bit to your story. How was it that you came about to the place of being able to trust in God and rely on your faith in a situation such as this? Because as you know, that can be very scary when we lose our job and we get down to the last of whatever funds we have available, what was it about you prior to that whole situation that really created your sense of faith and your obvious ability to persevere? I know what it is now, and, and I would say that it was faith. I, I didn't know what it was then, and but the uh, preamble to that is I was an Episcopal nun in New York City from the time I was 20 until I was 27. I felt as though I was... Uh, called into the religious life, and I didn't know anything about nuns, and I certainly didn't know that Episcopalians had nuns, and my parents certainly weren't happy about that. That was a, a calling that I had, and I, and I ended up going to a convent that was in New York City, and I was 
there for seven years. At the end of about five and a half years, um, God clearly called me out of that and said, I don't want you here anymore. I had already taken my life out, and so I felt as though we had a, a really beautiful convent house in Upper State New York, mm-hmm. and, and I thought that that's where he was going to move me. And the only way he could move me that way was if the Reverend Mother was the one who moved me. So I thought, God must have told her. So I boldly went and knocked on her door and and said, this is what God has said with said to me. And she told me that I was trafficking with the devil and that I needed to go and pray until that spirit left me. So I did. I, I prayed for, for months. Well, a little more than three and a half months. And I went back to her and I said, this isn't this isn't the devil. This isn't the enemy. Because I know what fighting that is like. Mm-hmm. I think this is directly from God. And and she and I got in. She got because she became more controlling, and and I became more unhappy because I really felt as though I wasn't supposed to be there. Mm-hmm. And I and I ended up leaving. And mm-hmm. and I came back to California looking for a convent where I would live out my life out because mm-hmm. that's what I felt as though. I was supposed to do. And and I did find a, a convent that was willing to let me live under their under their roof. So I go, okay, God, you know, I found it. And God said, please notice there's no two-by-four hitting you over the head like the other two times. And so I, I let go of, of my habit and said, well, now I've got to figure out what I, you know, what I need to do. Because I checked it out. There's no market for used nuns. You know, <laughs> there isn't... There's an ad for that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, exactly. Whether you qualify as your experience, I understand what you're saying. Yeah, so I decided to uh, that I would go to school and, and be a nurse, and took I, I took all of the prerequisites to be an RN. I took the first year of RN training at Riverside City College, and it was, I was very near the end of that, that first year in the hospital, and I was aware there must be a way to take care of people before they end up in hospital beds. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's how I got interested in, in mental health and, and substance abuse and the idea of, of recovery. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I found out that if I could change, anyone could. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's my mantra had to do with if I, could, if, if I could do it, then anybody could because I, I wasn't someone special. I didn't have any anything special on the inside except the knowledge that change was possible. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I like that a lot. Going back a bit further, were there things in your childhood that created your desire to find out more about the religious experience and to become a nun and things like that? I like to share on the show where people are from their core as to what leads them into their current living out their life purpose and their passion. So if you could share some of that, that'd be wonderful because I think that's a great deal of what our story is about, is that foundational part of what we've learned in our experience. I grew up in a um, in a home where um, we went to church every Sunday. I would say that that I was spiritual and not religious. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that, and I remember when I was 15 that I had, I'd been on a mountain somewhere and, and I just told God, you can just, you know, just take my whole life. I, I want to live for you. And I didn't have a clue what that meant. 
Mm-hmm. And I and I knew that um, that I was interested in a relationship with God, and I was and I was very curious. I didn't know any nuns. In fact, when I was going to, I, I went to school in San Diego at San Diego State University, and there, was, there were nuns there. And whenever I would see them, I would cross over then cross the street on the other side. So so it, it, it wasn't a, a familiarity with that. The idea of, of having having God say, okay, this is, you know, this is what I want. Uh, I want all of you, and I want all of you in this religious life was was a surprise. And my, my, my father was sure that I would have to change religions and become a Roman Catholic when I found out that there that there were Episcopal convents. I, I explored it, I guess, a lot like uh, looking for a college. So I found five convents throughout the United States, and I wrote them letters, and, and I went to see them. And the first one that I walked into, I don't know if you've ever walked into a place and, and had it feel like this is home. Yes, yes, I have. I know that feeling. Mm-hmm. So I walked in, and here was this sense of home. Now, I didn't know that it was to this particular convent, but when I went to continue my journey of visiting these five, I really expected the same feeling at the second one, but it, it wasn't there nor at the third, nor the fourth, or the fifth. And so I, I came back to California, and, and my family and my friends were, were really pushing me to, to not do this. Mm-hmm. And at that time, I was, I was writing to somebody who was in that first convent, and one day I was aware that the letter that I was writing to her really should be written to the Reverend Mother, because I was really talking about what I longed to do, which mm-hmm. was there and to be a part of that peaceful life mm-hmm. and, uh, and and this particular convent had a had a school and and so it was um, being a teacher so so I went with uh, I went with no knowledge mm-hmm. and and we lived in Salem and in 1965 which is about the time things changed in the Roman Catholic Church and they loosened up things in the Episcopal convent um, tightened up mm-hmm. and we uh, we wore habits, and, and we didn't speak, and with the exception of teaching. And I, I learned a lot. I learned a lot about being quiet. But quite frankly, I, I didn't know that I would make it through the first week. And I decided if I could make it through the first week of not talking, I might be able to make it through the rest of my life because that was a, that was a, that was a real struggle. I can and imagine. Mm-hmm. A vastly different environment, of course, than what you were used to. A vastly different environment. And when I had, um, we can I'll fast forward to uh, when I felt as though God called, called me out of there, because the Reverend Mother didn't believe that was, that was what should happen. We were at odds, and God became my best friend. Mm-hmm. Um, he was the only solace I had since, mm-hmm. you know, the place where we lived in silence. And, and I knew, I knew what it is he wanted. I just didn't know how to get it, how to get there. Mm-hmm. And, and what I had to do literally was end up leaving in the middle of the night, taking 35 cents from the Cub Scout fund so that I had money for the subway. I called my parents after I left and asked if they would send me an airplane ticket so that I could come back to California. Mm, wow, that must have taken a lot of courage, and obviously you had a lot of faith 
in what you were doing at that moment and knowing that all would be well. Yes. Well, I had, I hope that all would be well. I, I, you know, when we're in that, when we can't see around the bend in the road mm-hmm. to what the goal is, we wonder, you know, what are we doing out here? Yes. And it's only when we get to the destination that everything behind us begins to make sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I, so I can sit here and say, oh, look at A, B, C, D, and E all added up mm-hmm. to my being able to, to be here. I didn't know that then. Right, exactly. But there's still something within you, which is what I like to encourage others with, that we do have an inner strength and an inner courage. And sometimes, while it might be scary, because we can't see around the bend, if you will, we need to take action. We need to do something. We need to make a change. And I think especially when we have faith, which I too have the faith in God and definitely believe in my prayer life serving me well, that that helps me to have that courage to say, I don't know the outcome. I don't even know for sure sometimes if this is the right path to be on, but I trust in God. And I think that that I have that. I think when I look when I look back at at my family life, one of the things that my parents had they were the most tenacious people I know. Whatever the obstacle was, they didn't let it interfere. Mm-hmm. And and I think that it is evident in uh, in my siblings as well. Though I didn't recognize it necessarily at at the time, they uh, we don't give up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I hear you. I'm definitely like that myself. That's that's a wonderful trait to have and a great thing to teach our children. So you went to Valley Restart and you thought you would be there maybe 30 days. And how long has it been now that you've been there? It has been seven years, four months, and um, about seven days longer than I thought. And I counted that way because I felt as though I was, I knew I would have 30 days and then I started being aware that anything after that was a gift. That's awesome. I love that. And I love your perspective on that. I think that that too helps us to get through those challenging times of not being sure what's next and feeling sometimes that we have nothing to hold on to, that nothing's secure. So it seems like you've embraced the whole process of being a part of Valley Restart. Can you share some of what Valley Restart is all about? What happens there as far as the teaching, training, and helping others to restart their lives? I think one of the things that um, that we have found is that when someone comes here, they are they are very broken and broken in that there is nowhere else that they can be. Mm-hmm. There is no one else who can help them. Mm. So they then have to um, humble themselves and say, you know, I need help. And then we want them to pick themselves up by their bootstraps, pull themselves up, dust themselves off, and, um, and go out and start this job of being successful. Because mm-hmm. our goal is that they would be able to have an income save it, and be able to successfully get a roof over their head. 
in a period of 90 days. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And, yeah. And, um, and the program itself is very structured. And we're aware that this isn't a program for everyone. Mm-hmm. I have guidelines. Because we have children here and families, um, I really needed to ensure that children would be safe. One of the things that we do as guidelines is that we don't take anyone with a violent history. Mm-hmm. We don't take anyone who has a warrant out for their arrest because we don't want to assist in helping them abscound from the law. Mm-hmm. We don't take parolees or sex offenders. It, it's just not a niche that, that works for us. Mm-hmm. Both of those people could have um, paid all of their dues to the legal system, but we are selective about that because of having children. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. What types of programs do you offer or utilize to help teach and retrain people that need to restart their lives? From the moment that somebody comes in, um, we're looking at how we're going to be able to help them leave. We're planning for their discharge before they even get out of the seat for the first interview. Mm-hmm. And it has to do with what is it that they, that they need to overcome. And we do that with what we call intensive case management. We have um, a case manager who has assigned them and that case management them through every, well, five days a week. So Monday through Friday, they meet with the case manager first thing in the morning at between 6 and 7. Then the case management team meets together at, at 8.30 with the resident manager. And then the case manager meets with um, the residents um, individually as needed in order to um, prepare an action plan or to support the efforts that they're making or to encourage them they feel stuck. Mm-hmm. We um, assist them with writing a resume, looking for jobs. Mm-hmm. They, uh, the structure of the program is that they would turn in a job search sheet every, every week. Mm-hmm. Everyone here around here also has to work 20 hours a week around the program program, whether they have a job or not, just like you or I still have to find time to clean the toilet or to clean up the refrigerator, Mm -hmm. the same thing is true here. Mm -hmm. When Mm -hmm. somebody has, uh, when they get a job, they have to save 80% of their money. And because, you know, there's those little plastic cards, you know, and you go to the store and you swipe this card and money comes off, we have them lock up their money um, in a safe that's in my office, and that is for when they are discharged. That's Hmm. for their deposits, their utilities, any of those things, so that they have, um, if if there has been any poor budgeting trap that had caught them prior to being here, those are overcome. Mm -hmm. If somebody has a, a substance abuse problem, they have to agree to go to treatment. If they are not interested in uh, going to treatment, this isn't the right place for them. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And what is your success rate like? We see about there are about 200 people a year that come and stay here anywhere from one day to 90 days. And um, the success rate is 96%. That's so 96% great. of the people move on to a higher level of housing. Now, that could be that they're renting a room or that they've reconciled with family, or that they're 
sharing with friends, but they are off the street and they're not in jail and they're not in a hospital. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, it sounds like a wonderful program to empower others to, you know, as you say, restart their lives and to work on the key things that are preventing them from being successful. And I know those programs are greatly needed all across the U.S. and other parts of the world. So I'm very excited to help support Valley Restart and to share about the organization on the radio show today, including your amazing story of hope. Can you share with our listeners where they can go to find out more about Valley Restart? Yes, we have a website. It's www.valleyrestart, that's one word, .org. And um, on it uh, is the history of the agency, about the program, what kinds of classes we offer. There, there are stories of people who have um, lived here. Sometimes people think, wow, homeless shelter, how depressing. But we really see more miracles than I think most people do in their lives because we have an opportunity to see those daily. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and to just just watch what what God does, mm-hmm. and there are just so many successful stories, and there are so many stories of hope for those of us who are who are in need of. If there's anybody out there listening and wondering, you know, how they're going to be able to provide. I have seven years of saying God provides. However, He provides at the eleventh hour. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that's very true. We don't always have it planned in advance and everything lined up, but it, it is that faith, I think, that requires us to know that we can trust even at the very last possible moment that things can turn around and work out for us. And I love that people can go to the website. I've gone myself and read some of the stories. They're very encouraging and inspiring. And there's also an opportunity to help as far as volunteering and donating to the organization. Is that correct? Yes, there is. And in case anyone wanted to to even financially help us, um, there's a link to PayPal where they could donate directly on the website. Wonderful. It takes about um, $23,000 a month. To be able to house these people, we are in and we're in a 1941 building that was built for uh, migrant farm workers and and became the Hemet Y and then it, um, we took it over in in 1995. So so it's an old building, but I think that um, people quickly get past what it is that that they have to become flexible with because of how encouraging um, being here is. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Linda, thank you so much for being willing to take your time to share part of your amazing story of hope and to encourage other people and for sharing about Valley Restart. And again, if any of the listeners would like more information, you can contact their website directly or, of course, contact Your Story Matters. Well, thank you so much for taking the, an interest in asking me to, to come and share this story. Um, I'm leaving this conversation smiling. Thank you so much, Linda. Take care.